Introduction, Section 6 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 6. Natural Mode of Explanation Adopted by the Rationalists. Eichhorn, Paulus. Whilst the reality of the biblical revelation, together with the divine origin and supernatural character of the Jewish and Christian histories, were tenaciously maintained in opposition to the English deists by numerous English apologists, and in opposition to the Wolfenbüttel fragmentist by the great majority of German theologians, there arose a distinct class of theologians in Germany who struck into a new path. The ancient pagan mythology, as understood by Evemerus, admitted of two modes of explanation, each of which was in fact adopted. The deities of the popular worship might, on the one hand, be regarded as good and benevolent men, as wise lawgivers and just rulers of early times, whom the gratitude of their contemporaries and posterity had encircled with divine glory. Or they might, on the other hand, be viewed as artful impostors and cruel tyrants who had veiled themselves in a nimbus of divinity, for the purpose of subjugating the people to their dominion. So, likewise, in the purely human explanation of the Bible histories, besides the method of the deists to regard the subjects of these narratives as wicked and deceitful men, there was yet another course open, to divest these individuals of their immediate divinity, but to accord to them an undegraded humanity, not indeed to look upon their deeds as miraculous, as little, on the other hand, to decry them as impositions, but to explain their proceedings as altogether natural, yet morally irreprehensible. If the naturalist was led by his special enmity of the Christianity of the Church to the former explanation, the rationalist, anxious, on the contrary, to remain within the pale of the Church, was attracted towards the latter. Eichhorn, in his critical examination of the Wolfenbüttel fragments, directly opposes this rationalistic view to that maintained by the naturalist. He agrees with the fragmentist in refusing to recognize an immediate divine agency at all events in the narratives of early date. The mythological researches of a Heine had so far enlarged his circle of vision as to lead Eichhorn to perceive that divine interpositions must be alike admitted or alike denied in the primitive histories of all people. It was the practice of all nations, of the Grecians as well as the Orientals, to refer every unexpected or inexplicable occurrence immediately to the deity. The sages of antiquity lived in continual communion with superior intelligences. Whilst these representations, such as Eichhorn's statement of the matter, are always, in reference to the Hebrew records, understood verbally and literally, it has hitherto been customary to explain similar representations in the pagan histories by presupposing either deception and gross falsehood, or the misinterpretation and corruption of tradition. But Eichhorn thinks justice evidently requires that Hebrew and pagan history should be treated in the same way, so that intercourse with celestial beings during a state of infancy must either be accorded to all nations, pagan and Hebrew, or equally denied to all. The mind hesitates to make so universal an admission, first, 
on account of the not unfrequent errors contained in religions claiming to have been divinely communicated secondly from a sense of the difficulty of explaining the transition of the human race from a state of divine tutelage to one of self-dependence and lastly because in proportion as intelligence increases and the authenticity of the records may be more and more confidently relied upon in the same proportion do these immediate divine influences invariably disappear if accordingly the notion of supernatural interposition is to be rejected with regard to the hebrews as well as to all other people the view generally taken of pagan antiquity presents itself at first sight as that most obviously applicable to the early hebrews namely that their pretended revelations were based upon deceit and falsehood or that their miraculous histories should be referred to the misrepresentations and corruptions of tradition this is the view of the subject actually applied by the fragmentist to the old testament a representation says eichhorn from which the mind on a nearer contemplation recoils is it conceivable that the greatest men of antiquity whose influence operated so powerfully and so beneficially upon their age should one and all have been impostors and yet have escaped the detection of their contemporaries according to eichhorn so perverted a view could arise only in a mind that refused to interpret the ancient records in the spirit of their age truly had they been composed with all the philosophical accuracy of the writers of the present day we should have been compelled to find in them either actual divine interpositions or a fraudulent pretense but they are the production of an infant and unscientific age and treat without reserve of divine interventions in accordance with the conceptions and phraseology of that early period so that in point of fact we have neither miracles to wonder at on the one hand nor deceptions to unmask on the other but simply the language of a former age to translate into that of our own day eichhorn observes that before the human race had gained a knowledge of the true causes of things all occurrences were referred to supernatural agencies or to the interposition of superhuman beings lofty conceptions noble resolves useful inventions and regulations but more especially vivid dreams were the operations of that deity under whose immediate influence they believed themselves placed manifestations of distinguished intelligence and skill by which some individual excited the wonder of the people were regarded as miraculous as signs of supernatural endowments and of a particular intercourse with higher beings and this was the belief not of the people only but also of these eminent individuals who entertained no doubt of the fact and who exulted in the full conviction of being in mysterious connection with the deity eichhorn is of the opinion that no objection can be urged against the attempt to resolve all the mosaic narratives into natural occurrences and thus far he concedes to the fragmentist his primary position but he rejects his inference that moses was an impostor pronouncing the conclusion to be over hasty and unjust thus eichhorn agreed with the naturalists in divesting the biblical narratives of all their immediately divine contents but he differed from them in this that he explained the supernatural lustre which adorns these histories 
not as a fictitious colouring imparted with design to deceive, but as a natural and, as it were, spontaneous illumination reflected from antiquity itself. In conformity with these principles, Eichhorn sought to explain naturally the histories of Noah, Abraham, Moses, etc. Viewed in the light of that age, the appointment of Moses to be the leader of the Israelites was nothing more than the long-cherished project of the patriot to emancipate his people, which, when presented before his mind with more than usual vividness in his dreams, was believed by him to be a divine inspiration. The flame and smoke which ascended from Mount Sinai at the giving of the law was merely a fire which Moses kindled in order to make a deeper impression upon the imagination of the people, together with an accidental thunderstorm which arose at that particular moment. The shining of his countenance was the natural effect of being overheated, but it was supposed to be a divine manifestation, not only by the people, but by Moses himself, he being ignorant of the true cause. Eichhorn was more reserved in his application of this mode of interpretation to the New Testament. Indeed, it was only to a few of the narratives in the Acts of the Apostles, such as the miracle of the day of Pentecost, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, and the many apparitions of angels, that he allowed himself to apply it. Here, too, he refers the supernatural to the figurative language of the Bible, in which, for example, a happy accident is called a protecting angel, a joyous thought the salutation of an angel, and a peaceful state of mind a comforting angel. It is, however, remarkable that Eichhorn was conscious of the inapplicability of the natural explanation to some parts of the gospel history, and with respect to many of the narratives took a more elevated view. Many writings in a similar spirit, which partially included the New Testament within the circle of their explanations, appeared. But it was Dr. Paulus, who, by his commentary on the Gospels in 1800, first acquired the full reputation of a Christian Ephemerus. In the introduction to this work, he states it to be the primary requisite of the biblical critic to be able to distinguish between what is fact and what is opinion. That which has been actually experienced, internally or externally, by the participants of an event, he calls fact. The interpretation of an event, the supposed causes to which it is referred either by the participants or by the narrators, he calls opinion. But, according to Dr. Paulus, these two elements become so easily blended and confounded in the minds both of the original sharers in an event, and of the subsequent relators and historians, that fact and opinion lose their distinction, so that the one and the other are believed and recorded with equal confidence in their historical truth. This intermixture is particularly apparent in the historical books of the New Testament, since, at the time when Jesus lived, it was still the prevailing disposition to derive every striking occurrence from an invisible and superhuman cause. It is consequently the chief task of the historian who desires to deal with matters of fact, that is to say, in reference to the New Testament, to separate these two constituent elements so closely amalgamated, and yet in themselves so distinct, and to extricate the pure kernel of fact from the shell of opinion. In order to do this, in the absence of any more genuine account which would serve as a correcting parallel, 
he must transplant himself in imagination upon the theatre of action and strive to the utmost to contemplate the events by the light of the age in which they occurred and from this point of view he must seek to supply the deficiencies of the narration by filling in those explanatory collateral circumstances which the relator himself is so often led by his predilection for the supernatural to leave unnoticed it is well known in what manner dr paulus applies these principles to the new testament in his commentary and still more fully in his later production the life of jesus he firmly maintains the historical truth of the gospel narratives and he aims to weave them into one consecutive chronologically arranged detail of facts but he explains away every trace of immediate divine agency and denies all supernatural intervention jesus is not to him the son of god in the sense of the church but a wise and virtuous human being and the effects he produced are not miracles but acts sometimes of benevolence and friendship sometimes of medical skill sometimes also the results of accident and good fortune this view proposed by eichhorn and more completely developed by paulus necessarily presupposes the old and new testament writings to contain a minute and faithful narration composed shortly after the occurrence of the events recorded and derived wherever this was possible from the testimony of eyewitnesses for it is only from an accurate and original report that the ungarbled fact can be disentangled from interwoven opinion if the report be later and less original what security is there that what is taken for the matter-of-fact kernel does not belong to opinion or tradition to avoid this objection eichhorn sought to assign a date to the old testament histories approximating as nearly as possible to the events they record and here he and other theologians of the same school found no difficulty in admitting suppositions the most unnatural for example that the pentateuch was written during the passage through the wilderness however this critic admits that some portions of the old testament the book of judges for instance could not have been written contemporaneously with the events that the historian must have contemplated his heroes through the dim mist of intervening ages which might easily have magnified them into giant forms no historian who had either witnessed the circumstances or had been closely connected with them in point of time could embellish after such fashion except with the express aim to amuse at the expense of truth but with regard to remote occurrences it is quite different the imagination is no longer restricted by the fixed limits of historical reality but is aided in its flight by the notion that in earlier times all things were better and nobler and the historian is tempted to speak in loftier phrase and to use hyperbolical expressions least of all is it possible to avoid embellishment when the compiler of a subsequent age derives his materials from the orally transmitted traditions of antiquity the adventures and wondrous exploits of ancestors handed down by father to son and by son to grandson in glowing and enthusiastic representations and sung by the poets in lofty strains are registered in the written records of the historian in similar terms of high-flowing diction though eichhorn took this view of a portion of the old testament books 
he believed he was not giving up their historical basis, but was still able, after clearing away the more or less evident legendary additions, to trace out the natural course of the history. But in one instance at least, this master of the natural mode of interpretation in reference to the Old Testament took a more elevated view, namely of the history of the creation and fall. In his influential work on primitive history, although he had from the first declared the account of the creation to be poetry, he nevertheless maintained that of the fall to be neither mythology nor allegory, but true history. The historical basis that remained after the removal of the supernatural, he stated, to be this, that the human constitution had at the very beginning become impaired by the eating of a poisonous fruit. He thought it indeed very possible in itself, and confirmed by numerous examples in profane history, that purely historical narratives might be overlaid by a mythical account, but owing to a supernaturalistic notion, he refused to allow the same possibility to the Bible, because he thought it unworthy of the deity to admit a mythological fragment into a book which bore such uncontestable traces of its divine origin. Later, however, Eichhorn himself declared that he had changed his opinion with regard to the second and third chapters of Genesis. He no longer saw in them an historical account of the effects of poison, but rather the mythical embodying of a philosophical thought, namely, that the desire for a better condition than that in which man actually is, is the source of all the evil in the world. Thus, in this point at least, Eichhorn preferred to give up the history in order to hold fast the idea, rather than to cling to the history with the sacrifice of every more elevated conception. For the rest, he agreed with Paulus and others in considering the miraculous in the sacred history as a drapery which needs only to be drawn aside in order to disclose the pure historic form. End of section 6